Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages.
You know, to make a statement like that gets people really exercised. When you make the statement that this was one nation under Christ, that really gets people worked up. But folks, we need to understand what's meant by that concept. We saw this morning that in fact the Founding Fathers were men of faith. It's unquestionable if you look at what they actually said. That's an entirely different argument than saying that the Founding Fathers took their faith and used it as the implementation of a new way of life, a new society, a new system of government. By the way, I do have my phone, and if any of you have taken my cell phone number and start calling me, I will collect cell phones, all right? We're not going to play that game. Somebody made the statement to me they were going to do that. Before we get started tonight, I wanted to address uh, I wanted to address one thing that somebody said to me afterwards this morning, and I, it was an excellent point, uh, but I want to make sure that we follow this through to, to its logical end. Somebody came up and said, you know, when you start talking about the, the beliefs of the Founding Fathers, the faith of the Founding Fathers, you know, you also have to confront the, the moral evil of slavery that the Founding Fathers were okay with. Now, certainly some of the key Founding Fathers, George Washington and others, were opposed to slavery. They, they fought for the abolition of slavery in the Constitution, but the Founding Fathers made a conscious decision, and we shouldn't ignore or the reality that they made this decision. And I want to address it before we get started because the Founding Fathers said, right or wrong, we have a choice. We have a choice between two evils. On one side, we have the evil of slavery. On the other side, we have the evil of anarchy. Because if we try to abolish slavery in the U.S. Constitution, the southern states will never join the Union, and consequently, this whole experiment's going to fall apart before we ever get it started. So they chose, right or wrong, to compromise on the issue of slavery. Basically, kick the can down the road, not say anything about the issue, and we'll deal with it later. Well, we know the history, that we did deal with it later, and it exploded in a bloody civil war. Looking back, would we have done things differently? Perhaps, certainly so, we understand the moral evil of slavery. But you have to understand, again, the context of the issue. And I want to point one other thing out. When Abraham Lincoln made his crusade to abolish the moral evil of slavery, on what basis did he make that decree? What, what basis did he make that claim? The very cultural foundation that the Founding Fathers had given us. The very Declaration of Independence that certainly they didn't implement to perfection. That's why they allowed the slavery of certain individuals. But that creed that was rooted in biblical principle is what Abraham Lincoln years later would use as the basis for saying, wait a minute, this principle's right, but we haven't been implementing it right because we haven't been extending it. It was a great question, and, and so I wanted to address it. All right, enough of that serious stuff. Let's get on to the fun stuff, which is U.S. history. And it doesn't get any better than that, right? All right, so we're going to talk about one nation under Christ, this concept. Now, before we can even really get into this idea of what's going on in the American colonies, we've got to set the world stage. I'm going to give you all of world history that you really need to know. Uh, some people take years and years in college. Now, you need about 30 seconds with me, and you'll know all that you really need to know about world history. About the year 1400, that's a, that's a good time to start around. Around 1400, in other words, there was no history before 1400. Uh, 1400, most all European countries were Roman Catholic nations. They had converted to Roman Catholicism. Now, this guy right here, Martin Luther, uh, please don't get him confused as my students do with Martin Luther King Jr., okay? Uh, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King, two good guys, two completely different things. Okay, one was a German monk, he had the Reformation, the other one had a dream. All right, so good guys, but two different guys. Martin Luther comes along and he has some problems with the Roman Catholic Church. He writes them down, 95 problems, in fact. He calls, him, he calls them the 95 Theses, and he takes them and he nails them to the door of a church. Really, it was more like a bulletin board, but we'll just say church because that makes it sound more dramatic. So he nails them to the door of this church, and he's listing all of the problems. Problems like, well, well it, it, we, are, it, we are emphasizing the church, and we're not emphasizing the faith. 
You're selling grace to people. People say, well, I would like to, to make it into heaven. Well, you pay the church enough money, we'll make sure that you do. Uh, if, if, if you've got some people that died in your family, you pay the church enough money and we'll ensure that they made it into heaven, even if they were a miserable person. This is what the church was doing. And Luther said, that's, not ba that's based on a church hierarchy. It's not based on what the Word of God says. And so Luther sparks this, what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Why is that important to what we're talking about? Because, folks, this reaffirmation, this restatement, this reapplication of a biblical Christian worldview set off across Europe like wildfire. And it caught on like wildfire in Europe. And in fact, the northern and the western European countries were completely transformed by the Protestant Reformation. They became reformed Protestant Christian countries. Now, why does that matter? Well, which little nations got on the leaky ships and came across the ocean to plant the colonies? We're talking the northern and the, the western European countries. And the timing was significant. Uh, when did the Reformation happen? I just showed you. Did anybody pay attention? Yeah, around 1500. Good. One guy pays attention. That's spectacular. Around 1500 is when the Reformation took place. Somebody tell me, when did Columbus sail the ocean blue? Good. All right. We know that one. Folks, this isn't, I mean, this is kind of key. All right. The same time that we're starting to explore and plant colonies just so happens to be the same time that the Protestant Reformation completely changes the face of Europe. It obliterated Renaissance humanism in Northern and Western Europe. It seriously derailed it in Southern Europe. And because these nations became reformed Protestant nations, when they settled the new world, what you're going to have is a fresh start for biblical Christianity right here in the colonies. The Puritans are going to implement it, a biblical base for the colonies. Now, I want you to keep in mind, everywhere else, everywhere else that, that, that Christianity had gone, it was mixing with other philosophies that were already there. Here, this is completely different. It's one of the reasons we still see a biblical Christian residue in this country, even after all the changes we've gone through, because here it got a fresh and a clean start with the Puritans implementing it. The Enlightenment would come along, obviously, and the Enlightenment brought with it a lot of the rationalism, and that would influence some of our founding documents, and you certainly see that. But what you have is a biblical side and a rationalist side that works its way into the foundations of American government. Now, I want to point out to you, biblical Christianity gets a firm base right here in America. Uh, even though it got a firm base, rationalism is going to come here too. And I don't want to, to, to mislead you by telling you that there was no rationalist thought or anything like that at the foundation of America. We should, if we're pursuing truth, understand that there's a little of both that influences the founding documents. But let's, let's talk for just a second about what the major motivation behind these people are. Why do I want to address this? Because I teach U.S. history. We just went through U.S. Uh, history textbook adoption in the school where I teach. And by the way, the school where I teach, it's a small little community right here in the middle of the Bible Belt. In, in central Indiana. Uh, folks, you should see some of these textbooks. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, first of all, what's in the textbooks, but it's almost as unbelievable what is not in the textbooks. We start talking about basic things like European exploration of the New World. Uh, well, I always tell my students there's three major factors behind exploration. What are those three factors? In ascending order, you've got a strategic element. If you conquer more lands and territories, you're going to increase your world standing and strength, and that was definitely a lure to a lot of countries. There's also an economic incentive. People are going to want to make money, and if you discover new lands and, and, and you expand 
expand your territory. It increases your chance for material possessions. There is certainly an economic and a strategic uh, incentive behind exploration. I want you to note also, though, there is a huge economic and strategic risk involved. Uh, I mean, this would be like financing a trip to the moon today. Most people don't want to run the risk of doing that. Think about the countries that actually try to travel out into space. There's not that many of them. It's the same principle back then. A lot of countries weren't willing to take on the risk that was associated with it. I'll do a lot for a dollar bill, but there are some things that I'm not going to do. And you and I both know that religion causes men to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Look at the Middle East. You have people that throw rocks at tanks. Who in their right mind would ever think it was a great idea to run out into the street and throw a rock at a tank? What possesses these people to do that? Well, what possesses them is they're not just fighting for their homeland. They're fighting for their holy land. Religion will propel people into doing things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. And it is my contention to you that the major factor behind exploration was indeed a religious enterprise to spread Christianity, to do the way and will of God and to implement it in their lives. I tell my students to remember it by the three G's, God, gold, and glory. It's a lot easier than you know, the other words because they don't start with the same letter. God being religious, gold being economic, and glory being the strategic element. But again, remember what we established this morning, I am a radical right-wing nut job. And so because of that, I'm just trying to influence these students and convince them of something that fits my own personal worldview, when in fact it's not truth at all. Because the the textbooks will tell you, well, number three and number two were involved, but number one, that's just a bunch of hogwash. Uh, I tell you what, don't trust me and don't trust the textbooks. Let's ask the little people that came across the ocean themselves. Now, we're going to have a seance, and I hope you're okay with this. What we're going to do, we're going to, I'm just kidding. It was a joke. The sad thing is some of you were actually getting ready to move your chairs around and begin this, all right? No, uh, these people wrote things down. I don't know how, you, how many of you remember the Mayflower. It was a little boat that they got on over in, in, in Europe, and they sailed across the ocean. They were coming over to plan a colony in the northern part of Virginia, but bad navigation, uh, bad weather, blew them off course, and they ended up landing where? Good, Massachusetts, Plymouth Rock. That's where, they put, that's where they dropped anchor. Now, they had a choice when they stopped there in Massachusetts, and they see the big sign, welcome to Massachusetts. They realize this is not Virginia, we got a problem. If we get off the boat here, there's nobody in charge anymore. Uh, the captain's not in charge, and our charter was specific to the, to the colony of Virginia. So what do we do? If we get off, we are now going to be in a state of anarchy. So we can either stay on the boat and go down and look for Virginia, which nobody wanted to do after weeks on the ocean, or we can write a system of government for ourselves and get off the boat. And that's what they decided to do. It became the first form of self-government in North America. It was the Mayflower Compact. Why am I telling you all of this? Because in the Mayflower Compact, they tell you why they came across the ocean. You don't have to trust me. Take a look at this. November 11, 1620. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subject of our dread, that means revered and feared, sovereign Lord King James, of great, uh, 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 of, uh, sovereign Lord King James, uh, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, defender of the faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in northern parts of Virginia do, and here's where they go on to say, organize ourselves into a civil body politic, all of this stuff. But did you catch it? I mean, because if you didn't, I'll highlight it for you here. Why did they come across the ocean? For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. You don't have to take my word for it. Just read what these men said themselves. And the reality is that these early colonies had a strong biblical base. Simply look at the history of these colonies. You see policies that they implement. No worky, no eaty. If you don't do the work, you're not going to eat the food. And they implemented this biblical policy. And the amazing thing is, it actually worked. Get this. Church attendance was required and it was punished with ostracism or jail time if he didn't go. Now, Brett has been pushing the state legislature to push through something like that. I don't know if he'll be successful, but this is exactly what they did. And you know the Puritans get a bad rap. 
They really do. There was a, a television show that came out. Uh, I'm really getting annoyed by this thing again. I, I did it Brett's way, and that's why this is a problem. But anyway, I really should lighten up on him. He's been nice to me today. Okay. Anyway, uh, there was this television program that came out. I think I was in college at the time. It was called uh, uh, Giving Thanks or Thanks or something like I don't know. But it was about the Puritans, and they just mocked the Puritans about how, how strict and how mean and everything that they were. Now, first of all, this is part of Hollywood's problem. They don't seem to get the fact that Nobody wants to watch these kind of shows. I don't know. I, I think maybe I gave you my, uh, my honest gut feeling that if, if one of those channels, ABC, CBS, NBC, canceled their whole lineup, put on the Andy Griffith show, the Cosby show, the Dick Van Dyke show, they would easily wipe up in the ratings. I still believe that. A year later, I'm still in firm belief of that. But anyway, so they put this television show on. But let's stop and think about it for just a second. Why were the Puritans so strict? Why were the Puritans so strict? I want you to keep in mind, when I, was, uh, when I was growing up, there was a Bible passage, a lot of Bible passages I didn't fully understand, and one of them was the one that, that said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That one always bothered me because I kind of wanted to be wealthy one day. I mean, that's kind of the whole American dream, and so I was like, well, this kind of stinks if I accrue wealth. That'd be nice, but then I can't go to heaven. Well, as I got older, I started to realize what that principle is, is really trying to teach to us. And that is when you have all your material possessions at your fingertips, you have everything you could ever want right at your fingertips, like we do here in the United States of America today. Uh, again, you know we don't suffer with poverty here in this country. Folks, when you have everything right at your fingertips, it is very, very difficult to be utterly reliant on God. It's very difficult for you to remember to thank God for the, the, the simplest of His blessings that He pours out on us. But if you are completely dependent upon Him for anything and everything that you have, say, like these Puritans, who recognized if God doesn't bless our, our harvest, uh, we're going to die. If, God, if we have bad weather, we're not going to live. These people were pretty serious about their religious convictions. And the last thing they wanted to do was to bring God's judgment upon their colony because there were people in the colony that were misbehaving and living immoral lives. And for that reason, if you became an immoral individual and didn't live by God's statutes, they wanted nothing to do with you. They ostracized you because they didn't want the punishment of God to come on them. And when you start to realize their perspective and where they were and when they were there, you start to understand the Puritans a little bit better. Uh, get this one. Education in the colonies, they feel used it with religious teaching. That means religion was in the public classroom, and the amazing thing is their brains still functioned. They actually still work. Now, I know today we're, we're more enlightened, and we understand if you introduce a religious concept in school, the brains will explode, and the kids will melt onto the floor. It's literally unbelievable to watch this happen. But folks, the Bible was the only textbook in a lot of colonial schools. The only textbook that they had was the Bible. How amazing is that that now we question whether or not it's legal to have a Bible even present in the classroom. And it was the only textbook that they had back then. I want you to think, uh, remember also that charity was common and it was expected. And guess whose job it was? It was the job of the church, the job of the individual. It's not the job of government. Why? Because these colonists realize something. When the government becomes charitable, it's not giving away its money. It's giving away your money. And it's not charity if you're giving away somebody else's money. There's another word for that. It's called theft. 
And they weren't really into that concept. Charity was your responsibility. It was your duty, not the government's. God alone was to be sovereign. There was no institution that should be interposed between man and God. Nothing should come, whether that's education, whether that's the church, whether that's the government, the most primary basic relationship was between man and his God. God was sovereign, man was depraved, and crime was punished harshly and swiftly. I want to go back to this concept of God alone was sovereign. I referenced this this morning, and this is the diagram I came up with. The best way I can explain it to you. The way the founding fathers and the early colonists understood the separation of church and state, if you look at the left here, this is what they understood to be the separation of church and state. That clearly, there was a sacred world, and that was where the church was. This is Brett's job. He's to run the church. On the other side, you have the secular world, as we oftentimes call it, and, and that was the government. Now, I want you to notice something. Yes, Barack Obama's job is different than Brett's job, but they're both accountable for their actions to the same moral authority. That's what they understood as the separation of institutions. They have two different jobs, but they're both accountable to the same moral principles and the same moral truth for their actions. Today, we don't believe that. Today, we've got this concept that says, well, we've got this little part of, the, of life where, where God's going to be, and we'll come and see him on Sunday mornings, maybe Sunday nights, and, and maybe on Wednesday nights if he's really lucky. But then outside of that, God, you stay in your little box, and, and we're going to handle everything else because this is the secular world. And we make our politicians do all kinds of ridiculous dances. You may be a person of faith, but do you pledge that you will not allow your faith to influence you when you're making key decisions? And if they don't say yes, we think that's bad. Let me contend to you that I think it's a lot worse to have somebody who says, oh yes, when it comes to making decisions about right and wrong, I will not let my principles of right and wrong influence that decision. What in the world kind of a dance is that? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and yet this is where we are in our culture today. Well, we know as we got into the days of the early colonies that eventually the relationship between England and, and the colonies became Became strained. In fact, in early 1772, the men of Marlborough, Massachusetts declared this publicly, death is more eligible than slavery. A freeborn people are not required, look at their justification, by the religion of Jesus Christ to submit to tyranny, but may make use of such power as God has given them to recover and support their laws and liberties. We implore the ruler above the sky that he would make bare his arm in defense of his church and people and let Israel go. Folks, do you see the philosophy that's starting to work its way into the colonies? That these people were now God's chosen people. And this was, uh, this was manifest destiny. This was destiny for these people to shake off the chains of tyranny and to form their own country. Why? Because Jesus, the religion of Christ, would never compel them to live in chains. And that's essentially what had become of the relationship with the mother country. That the king was now the new Pharaoh. And they were the new Israelites. This is the philosophy that began creeping its way through. The king trying to get control of his colony. Some of you will remember from school, he passed the coercive acts. The colonists called them the intolerable acts. Well, what was the king trying to do? He was trying to get money back after the French and Indian War. The French and Indian War had been fought here. Uh, by the way, now that we're there, I'll tell you a little joke um, because you'll like it. Uh, so anyway, uh, during the French and Indian War, right, you've got the, the French and the Indians fighting the British and the British colonists. Well, the French take a couple of these, uh, these British uh, regulars captive and they put them in the prisoner of war camp and then they're just sitting there and so French guys go up to him and say you know we've always wondered why do you guys wear red coats we've always wondered why do you do that and so the British guys kind of look at each other well, I might as well tell them and so they did they said well actually it's it's more of an incentive thing for the for the military it's it's uh for uh, uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for um so that they don't give up the fight. If we're out in the middle of battle and we start getting shot up pretty bad, the color of the blood mixes with the color of the coat and the, the people that are further back in line don't give up the fight and run away. And that's why, friends, from that day forward, the French army wears brown pants. <laughs> 
All right, there you go. Hey, you shake your head, but you'll be telling it. I'm telling you that right now. So anyway, all right, sorry. Uh, after the French and Indian War, the British wanted to get their money back, and so they turned to the colonies and say, give us this money, and the colonists say, wait a minute, we're British citizens. You should pay every bit as much as we should pay. You can't hit us with the taxes. And the two go back and forth. Eventually, we get the coercive acts, the intolerable acts, the king basically saying, well, if you're not going to willingly pay my taxes, I'm just going to take it from you. That's essentially what these acts were. And so what do the colonies do? They form what's called the Committees of Correspondence. This means nothing to us today, but this was huge to them, because these colonists did not think of themselves as Americans. They thought of themselves as Marylanders and Virginians and uh, um, Rhode Islanders and um, Pennsylvaniacetans. All right. Um, so anyway, this is what they thought of. Them. They, they, they were in their own separate country. And this was the first time that what you had were the colonies starting to talk to each other and talk about what they were going to do about a mutual problem in the king. You want to know, know what their major rallying cry was? We always hear what phrase? No taxation without representation. But the truth is, if you went back into that time, got in a time machine and went back, you remember during the election when everything you saw, like on every telephone pole was a Ron Paul sign? I mean, they were literally everywhere, just like that, on their telephone poles, even though they didn't, you know, have the telephone poles. They saw these signs everywhere that simply said, no king, but King Jesus. That was the big phrase that they used, and it was all over the place. You don't read this in the history textbooks anymore, but that was because they really stuck it in the side of the king, and it really ticked him off, and that's exactly what the colonists were going for. Well, we know what happens. Fall of 1774, 12 out of the 13 colonies, Rhode Island doesn't come, get together to meet to discuss what they're going to do. They get together in Philadelphia. It's called the First Continental Congress, and here's what the First Continental Congress decided. This was fun. Let's meet again. I mean, that's really all that the First Continental Congress established, but this act of getting together was seen as utter defiance by the king and so he decides it's time to put down the rebellion and he sends over the redcoats in mass and as a result the colonists will form these militias to be prepared at a minute's notice they were called the Minutemen, and we all know history april 19 1775 the redcoats are marching towards uh, concord massachusetts that's where there's all of these stockpile of weapons and arms that the colonists had their militias had well of course paul revere and william dawes get the word out the night before the redcoats are coming the Redcoats are coming. And by the way, William Dawes always kind of gets the shaft. I mean, everybody remembers Paul Revere. He's got a band named after him. He's got a song and a poem named after him. And William Dawes, nobody ever writes a poem. The Midnight Ride of William Dawes, nobody cares. Anyway, so Paul Revere, William Dawes get the word out. And Paul Revere got caught for crying out loud. But anyway, I'll get off of the Paul Revere kick and we'll just move on. The first shots then are fired at a farmhouse near Lexington. Nobody knows who fired the first shots. Could have been the British, could have been the colonists, could have been a farmer in his field shooting a rabbit, accidentally started the war. Nobody really knows, but we did start the war. Now, this is interesting to me. We don't ever pay attention to the real first government of the United States. Because the moment we start the revolution, we're clearly not governed by England anymore. We're rebelling against them. And this group right here, the Second Continental Congress, was actually our first governing body. We don't pay attention to what our first actual governing body did. There were a lot of problems that came as the result of our war with England. And one of those key problems um, was how we go about convincing Americans to get on board with all of this. Less than two months after the shot heard round the world, the Congress made this proclamation to the colonists. I want you to imagine real quickly, before I show you this, that our Congress, in this day, in a time of war, 
were to make a proclamation like this to the United States of America. Take a look at this. It is recommended to Christians of all denominations to assemble for public worship and to abstain from servile labor and recreations on that day for the purpose of confessing sins and seeking God's blessing. Can you imagine what would happen to the ACLU if Congress put something like that out? I mean, the entire organization would implode. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves if Congress actually said something like this. Well, of course, we all know as a result of uh, the, the efforts that were being made by the colonists, our Continental Congress decides it's time to actually declare ourselves independent of, uh, of Great Britain. And so they commission a five-man team to write it. Now, we all know what happens. You remember from school when you were put in a team and one person does all the work and the other guys just kind of put their names on the paper at the end. That's essentially what happened here. Thomas Jefferson does the heavy lifting. There's a couple guys that help him revise it. If you've never read the Declaration of Independence, shame on you. This is the founding creed of this country. You ought to go home and read it. And this time I'm not making it up. The Treaty of Tripoli stuff, that was a joke. But this Declaration of Independence, every American should read this document. It is, it is, it's an amazing statement of human liberty. In fact, probably one of the best, if not the best, that's ever been written. And it's not just me that says that as a cocky American. The United Nations themselves, when they were writing their Declaration of Rights, they quoted from the American Declaration of Independence. Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, when he's declaring independence for his country, he quotes from the American Declaration of Independence. It is one of the most often referenced documents as far as an actual creed of what human rights really are that the world has ever seen. But I'm going to give you the Peter Heck version of this, all right? It's like Cliff Notes, except it's Heck Notes, all right? Here is the summary of what the Declaration is. If you had a test tomorrow and you didn't have time to read it, this is what you would need to know. Principle number one said this, there are rights that belong to the people that are based on a higher law of God. They don't come from government. Government gives you some rights, or at least allows you certain rights, but there are others that come from the hand of God himself. And therefore, since they come from God, which is above all government, which is above all men, no constitution, no government has any right to take those rights away from you. And if a government tries to take those rights away from you, the people have every right to overthrow that government, to abolish it, to destroy it, and replace it. That's principle number one. Principle number two of the Declaration of Independence says, well, there was an agreement. There was a compact. You know uh, an agreement that you have. If I hire uh, uh, Jerome to do the, uh, uh, the shingles on my house, and I agree to pay him you know, $50,000 to shingle my house... It's a big house, um, and he's going to come and do it for me, and, and he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. Am I going to pay him? Am I going to uphold my end of the bargain? Of course not, because this is an agreement, a contract, and this is what they say in the Declaration. There was an agreement. The colonists agreed to give up their freedom, some of it, to the king to be governed. They are giving their consent to be governed, and in response, what was the king going to do for them? The king was going to protect those God-given rights. What God-given rights are we talking about? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are basic rights that God gives to every human being, and nobody should deny it. Now, if you planted all of us on an island, you just dropped us all on an island, we were living there, we all respect each other, and so we probably wouldn't need a government for a while, but as we start populating the island again and our country starts to grow, what's going to happen? Well, my offspring are going to naturally be tougher and bigger than all of yours, and as a result, they may start, <laughs> yeah, right, uh, they may start abusing other people, and so what will the people eventually do? They'll eventually, for the sake of the protection of their own basic rights, they will agree to a government to preside over and to, and to establish order over the people and to punish the wrongdoer. They're giving up some of their freedom, but they're getting something in return. They're getting protection from the government. And this was the agreement that existed between the king and his colonists. But the king 
had actually violated that compact over and over and over again. Not only was he not protecting their basic rights, he was taking those rights away, removing those rights from them, the very rights that he was supposed to protect. And this is point number three. By doing so, he'd made himself a tyrant over the colonies. He was unfit to be the ruler of a free people because he had deprived with Parliament the colonists of the very rights that he was supposed to protect. And so principle number four, the last one, the colonists had and were therefore exercising their right, making their reasons known to the world to withdraw their consent to be governed by the king. And they were implementing new government, completely absolved from any allegiance to the British crown. That is the Declaration of Independence, the four main principles of the Declaration. But you know where it's rooted? You want to know where its foundation is? If you ever read this document, you'll see it over and over and over again. Four times, in fact, there are direct references tying these claims to the authority of the Almighty Creator God, to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle us to certain rights. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Endowed is an act of a will. Remember, it's not a deist God. God that's a deist God is wanders off somewhere. This very statement completely destroys any notion that our founding fathers were deists because they're saying we are endowed by God with these basic rights, an act of the will. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of American General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. The only way this is justified, the only way this is legitimate, and only way this should work is if, in fact, we are in line with biblical authority. And finally, then, for, a fir- with, for support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, the only way the revolution succeeds is if God is with us. Now, it's interesting to me, as, after we write the Declaration of Independence and we're fighting this war, um, one of the major consequences of the war was we lose our major trading partner. England was our major trading partner. Those of you that aren't geography whizzes, uh, you might want to know that England's this dinky little island nation. They don't have a lot of raw materials there on England, uh, in- English shores. But over here in the colonies, we didn't have a lot of industry. They've got the industry. We got a ton of raw materials. So we had a really nice relationship with the two of them that went back and forth. So when we start fighting them, we lose our major trading partner. So September 11, 1777, Congress takes action to relieve what they call a calamitous effect of the lost trade with England. You want to know what that calamitous effect was? I mean, here's our trading partner. 90% of our trade was with Great Britain. And this was the first thing that Congress seeks to establish. This was their decree. The use of the Bible is so universal and its importance so great that Congress will order the Committee of Commerce to import 20,000 Bibles from Holland, Scotland, or elsewhere and distribute them into the different parts of the states of the Union. Again, I wish, I want you to imagine that today, in a time of war, Congress decides to spend taxpayer money on going out and getting Bibles and sending them to all of the states so that the people can study and read them because this is necessary for our survival. I mean, it's just illogical to even think this would ever happen. And look at what Congress did after they uncovered, after the uncovering of the Benedict Arnold plot to betray General Washington uh, to the British. Congress issues a proclamation of, uh, for a day of public prayer. It is therefore recommended to the several states a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to confess our unworthiness of the least of his divine favors and to offer our fervent supplications to the God of all grace to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all of the earth. This was the first government of the United States and these were the decrees they were making. Now, let me ask you the question. Did those guys take their personal beliefs and use them as the core foundation for the government that they were establishing? I hope you're picking up on it. But let me show you in more detail. The, the thing is, when you start talking about... Um, 
early American government, because of our mindset, we start thinking immediately of Washington, D.C. The Founding Fathers would be rolling over in their graves if they knew that. That was never the intent. The Founding Fathers believed that government is best kept close to you, close to the people. In other words, they would have said, do you have more control over your local school board or over your National Congress? That's a no-brainer. You got more control over your local school board because you know them, they are accountable to you, and for that reason, we want more power of government focused locally than we do out there in a national government. So when we start talking about how much the Founding Fathers used their principles of faith to influence government, it would be really dumb and really uneducated to start looking immediately at the national government. We should look at where the focus of power was, and that was in the early state governments. And I'll tell you something, you're going to be pretty amazed when you start looking at this. I'm only going to show you one, maybe two quotes out of these state constitutions. The first 13 states, let's start with Georgia. This was in their constitution. All members of the legislature shall be of the Protestant religion. The representatives shall be chosen out of the residents in each county, and they shall be of the Protestant religion. Take a look at the state of South Carolina. Move north a little bit, and this is what they say, that all persons in religious societies who acknowledge that there is one God, a future state of rewards and punishments, heaven and hell, and that God is publicly to be worshipped, shall be freely tolerated, that all denominations of Christians in this state, demeaning themselves peaceably and faithfully, shall enjoy equal religious and civil privileges. We can keep going. We can look at North Carolina, just north of them, and this is what the Constitution of North Carolina said, that no person who shall deny the being of God, in other words, if you're an atheist, or the truth, of the Protestant religion, anything but a Protestant Christian, uh, or the divine authority of the Old and New Testaments, or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state, shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state. You get that, right? If you were an atheist, if you doubted the truth of the Christian revelation, uh, you're not serving in our government because you're a little bit touched, and we're not going to have any part of that. And how about the state of New Jersey? This is what they said, that there shall be no establishment of any one religious sect in, the, in this province in preference to another, and that no Protestant inhabitant of this colony shall be denied the enjoyment of any civil right merely on account of his religious principles, that all persons professing a belief in the faith of any Protestant sect. Now, I want you to keep in mind all of this reference to uh, protecting the rights of the various sects or the denominations of Christians. That's going to come in huge here in just a second, so don't forget it. You got it? Because we're going to go on now if you got it. We can look at the state of Maryland. By the way, uh, Maryland was the great tolerance state. You know our understanding of tolerance today. Uh, tolerance is if, if, if you worship Jesus, that's great. But if somebody else worships their number two yellow pencil, their values are just as true as yours. And their beliefs are just as important as yours are. Um, no. But anyway, this is our understanding of tolerance, that you have to be completely understanding, and not just understanding, but accepting and condoning of all other belief systems. Well, Maryland was the great toleration state. In fact, they, in 1649, passed the first Toleration Act, the Great Tolerance Act in Maryland. You know what their Toleration Act said? The Toleration Act in, in Maryland in 1649 says, No person who believes in Jesus Christ shall henceforth be troubled or molested on account of religion. Um, that means that they were tolerant of Catholics. Protestants and Catholics we would tolerate. That was their understanding of it. And now here we are with, uh, you know, you're worshiping the cow out in the field, and oh, well, that's just as legit as anything else. We have to take that seriously. Take a look at what the Constitution of Maryland said, that no test or qualification ought to be required on admission to any office or trust or profit than such oath of support and fidelity to this state as shall be directed by this convention or the legislature of this state and a declaration of belief in the Christian religion. How about the state of Virginia in their Bill of Rights, Article 16, that religion or the 
duty which we owe our Creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed by reason and convictions, not by force or violence. Therefore, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. It is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. In the state of Connecticut, this is what Connecticut said, each and every society or denomination of Christians in this state shall have, this, shall have and enjoy the same equal powers and rights and privileges. How about the People's Republic of Massachusetts? Let's take a look at them for a second and realize what Massachusetts was saying at its founding. The governor shall be chosen annually. No person shall be eligible to this office unless at the time of his election he shall declare himself to be of the Christian religion. All persons elected to the state or office must make the following declaration. I, John Kerry, do declare that I believe in the Christian religion and have firm persuasion of its truth. Folks, this is what the Constitution of Massachusetts required if you were going to serve in government. How about Rhode Island and Providence Plantations? This is what their preamble said. The people of the state of Rhode Island, Providence Plantations, grateful to Almighty God for the civil and religious liberty that he has given us. Look at Delaware. I mean, this one amazes me. Um, you know when somebody decides to, to transfer their membership to another church, they have to make this public declaration of their faith in Christ. You know, we make them do that in front of the church, at least, you know, sometimes we do. I want you to look at this from the state of Delaware and tell me that this is not exactly what it sounds like that you would have somebody do if they were transferring their membership into a Christian church. Take a look at this. Every person shall be chosen must make the following declaration if they're going to serve in, in government. I, Peter Heck, do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ his only Son and in the Holy Ghost one God blessed forevermore. I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Folks, I, I will contend to you that that's actually a harder declaration than what we make people make if they're going to transfer their membership. And this was to serve in government. Do you remember Dr. Stephen Morris this morning uh, when he made the statement that uh, these people, the founding fathers, rejected the absurdities of the Old and the New Testament? It's kind of interesting to me. The same people that rejected the absurdities of the Old and New Testament would be requiring anybody to serve in government to acknowledge the authority of those Old and New Testaments. Kind of crazy how that works. I'm not exactly sure how we make that connection, but I'm working on it. I'll let you know when I come up with something. New Hampshire. How about the state of New Hampshire? Sure. I am a real smart aleck, and I'm sorry. I shouldn't be that way, but I found that it is my spiritual gift, so I'm just going with it. 1776, this is the Declaration of Rights in New Hampshire. Look, at this amazes me. The open denial of the being and existence of God is prohibited by statute and declared to be blasphemy. You couldn't say you were an atheist in the state of New Hampshire. They said, uh, you're going to need to find another state to live. I'm sorry, we're just not into that here. All right, again, you stop and think about this, that there can be any discussion, any argument as to whether or not the early early Americas, uh, the early American states, the early American government was influenced by Christianity. It's just coming from a, an absolute um, a lack of knowledge on this topic. The reason that we allow this discussion to go on is because we don't know our history. Because it's right there in front of us. Take a look at Article 1, Section 6. Every denomination of Christians demeaning themselves quietly and as good citizens shall be equally under the protection of the laws. The state of New York, we the people of the state of New York, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom, so on and so forth. Last one in Pennsylvania. This is what the Constitution of Pennsylvania said. Each member of the legislature must make the following declaration. Here we go again. I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good, the punisher of the wicked. I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Folks, what does all of this say? You don't have to be a constitutional scholar here to realize what's going on. You don't have to be a constitutional scholar to see the common thread that is woven throughout the tapestry of the early colonies, the early states of this country. Folks, it is clear that there was a firm reliance, a firm reliance on Christian principle in the early states, in early American government. It's not just colonial government. It's not just the colonies. In early American government. 
Now, we have this first attempt at government. We call it the Articles of Confederation. It doesn't work out so well. We replace it with the Constitution. But I want you to understand that even under the Constitution, we still had a firm biblical base. And you want to know what made sure of it? The very amendment that we now use to chase religion out of the public square... It is shocking what we've done to the First Amendment. It is shocking. And it would be shocking to the Founding Fathers who wrote the First Amendment if they saw the way that it was construed today. Let's talk about it real quickly. Uh, As we finish up, I want to talk about the First Amendment, and that'll set us up for next week when my head will explode Sunday morning. Uh, A great deal of misunderstanding about the First Amendment. Uh, If we really want to understand what the Founding Fathers intended with this, um, if we really want to preserve our sacred liberties, then we better start looking at context, and we better start looking at, at, at what they were saying themselves, what they intended themselves. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is not a proper interpretation from our courts. We're seeing an utter distortion, an utter distortion of what the First Amendment means. Now, we all know this. You remember this from school. The First Amendment has five unique freedoms that are written in there. And it's not by chance the way they pick these things out. I want you to pay attention, by the way, to the very first one of all of our freedoms that the government sought to protect, the Founding Fathers sought to protect. Here's what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Five freedoms right there. You've got the freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. And which one was the first one listed? And it's not by chance, friends. I want you to also pay attention to that word right there. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress. It doesn't say state legislatures shall make no law. It doesn't say the governor can make no law. It doesn't say your local school boards or the school community or the mayor or your city council will make no law respecting these things. How do I know that? Well, because at the time that this amendment was written, a lot of states did have established state churches. And the moment this amendment goes through, those state churches didn't get abolished. Now, the only way that makes sense is if we properly understand that this restriction was placed on the national government. Why? goes back to the core philosophy of the Founding Fathers, that government is best kept close to the people. You know, one of the major arguments that people will use to say that this government was not based on Christian principle is that in the U.S. Constitution, it says we're not going to give a religious test. If you're you're going to serve an American government, we're not going to give you a religious test. Now, is that because they were okay with people that weren't religious? Well, no. The reason that they said that was because they believed that that decision should be made at what level? the state level. And a lot of states had those tests. The reason they didn't, they they said we're not going to have one for the national government because they didn't want to upset the various states. If Virginia's doing it this way and Maryland's doing it that way and Rhode Island's doing it that way, how are we going to make one law that's going to make all of them happy? One religious test that's going to make all of them happy? It's best just to say that's best handled at the state level. The national government's going to have nothing to do with it. Furthermore, you know these colonists are a little bit uneasy about a national government making any decrees about religion based on what they just experienced with the king of England. Again, I want you to note the position of that freedom of religion. Of all of the precious liberties they sought to protect, religion was the first one. It is the core philosophy, the core motivation of our founding fathers in this republic, protecting your rights of worship, not infringing on the rights of conscience of the individuals. Now, you look at that First Amendment, and there's two clauses. Uh, There's the first one, the Establishment Clause. This is the one we talk about all the time. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. And then there's the one we forget all the time. It's a free exercise clause. The government cannot prohibit the free exercise of your religion. 
We never think about that. Uh, you know, when I hear the courts rule, and, and, and I see that the courts have ruled, that we're not going to have prayer at graduation. You're not going to allow a student to say a prayer in the name of Jesus at graduation. And, and do you know the logic behind it? You know how they arrive at that decision? This is how they arrive at the decision. The court says, well, the, the school allowing somebody to say a prayer like that, that's essentially the school putting its stamp of approval on that prayer. And it's making all everybody think that the school's okay with that prayer. And the school is, in essence, since they're getting taxpayer dollars a government institution and since it's a government institution getting taxpayer dollars that's essentially the same thing as congress okaying all of this and since it's essentially the same thing as congress okaying it that's basically like congress establishing a national religion yikes i mean how do you come up with that because let me tell you what seems to be a, a lot more apparent to me when a governing official like a school administrator steps in and tells bobby you can't pray in the name of jesus that sure sounds a lot more like a violation prohibiting the free exercise of that student's religion to me. Sure sounds like that's an open and shut constitutional case, but yet we're going to go on this ridiculous uh, warpath through the Establishment Clause to try to remove any notion of religiosity, and that's not a word, but it is for tonight, from the public square. Uh, that's, that's the path that we're going to be on. It's astounding to see what has happened to this Establishment Clause. It is the most misinterpreted, the most misunderstood in all of American constitutional history because its intent is readily apparent. Just read the stinking words, and they'll tell you what the First Amendment means means what the establishment clause means uh, folks when it says congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion let me make this as simple as i can that means congress cannot establish a national religion it should not be difficult for us to figure out what they were saying because they were saying it quite plainly what did the amendment really mean it was designed to prevent the national government from declaring one particular religious denomination to be the national religion that's what it was all about they were very fearful that one denomination or another might uh, obtain a lot of positions in the power of national government and make a decree saying, everybody, this is going to be the Church of America. That was their fear, and they didn't want that to happen, so they forbid Congress from establishing a religion. World history demonstrated what happens when you have those kind of relationships between the church and the state where everybody is forced and compelled by the hand of government. That what you find is not allegiance to the government, or not allegiance to the church either, not allegiance to the faith. Christianity, these guys understood, is a religion of free will acceptance. It's nothing that can be forced by the hand of government. You want to know why I feel confident in this? Because 60 years after the First Amendment, 60 years later, the Senate Judiciary Committee of the United States held the first hearings we've ever had on what the First Amendment really meant. They told us what the Founding Fathers meant when they wrote this. And they concluded it was a very narrow interpretation. Take a look at what they said. The First Amendment clause speaks of an establishment of a religion. What is meant by that expression? It refers, uh, when they say an establishment of religion, what do they mean by that? Well... What's meant, it refers without doubt to the establishment that existed in the mother country. So if we want to know what they meant by you can't establish a religion, we need to ascertain what that establishment was in the mother country because that's what they're referring to. So what was that relationship in the mother country? It was the connection with the state of a particular religious society. A particular religious denomination, its endowment at the public expenses, in exclusion of or in preference to any other, by giving its members of one denomination exclusive political rights and compelling the attendance of those who rejected its communion upon its worship and religious observances. These three particulars constituted that union of church and state of which our ancestors were so justly jealous and against which they so wisely and carefully provided. That's what the First Amendment Establishment Clause meant. They did not want government to be able to do those very things that government was doing in England. That's it. 
They never had in mind that we were going to prevent students from praying in the name of Jesus before a football game, before a graduation ceremony. Never in a million years did they even conceive of such a notion. And again, we can know that because of this little baby, the free exercise clause. This again reemphasizes the importance. Uh, James Madison, you know what Madison did with his dad? James Madison would go around and, and he would listen to Baptist ministers that had been jailed, put in prison for preaching their faith. Madison was a firm believer in religious freedom. It had a great impact on him. He becomes the father of the Constitution. He and his dad, this influence uh, clearly was reflected when Madison starts uh, writing some of these documents, uh, including the First Amendment. And here's the big kicker. This is, to me, what sells me. Out there on the, uh, on the table, there's a pamphlet called The Founders and the First. It's written by a, a scholar on the First Amendment. Um, I'm trying to remember what his name. Oh, yeah, it was me. Um, and uh, I couldn't remember there for a second, but yeah. It was actually my master's thesis that I wrote on this topic of, and, and this was my subject. What did the First Amendment mean to the men who wrote the First Amendment? Yeah, to me, that's the one thing we never look at. And if we really want to know what the First Amendment meant... Let's look at the way that the Founding Fathers employed the First Amendment. And when you start looking at what they said it meant and the way that they employed it when they were in positions of authority, uh, to me, that's the best indicator of what they... And especially the debates that they had when they were writing it. I mean, we have all of this written down, but we never talk about it anymore. We never look at it anymore. And to me, it's absolutely compelling. When you look at the debate that these authors of the First Amendment had, it illuminates its meaning in, so, in such profound ways. This is what James Madison originally proposed the First Amendment say. Now, we didn't go with it, but this is what Madison suggested that it say. The civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or any pretext infringed. In other words, you, you alone are to be determining your religious practice. You alone are in charge of that, and nobody should dictate to you one way or another. Nobody should dictate your denominational practice. Now, Madison was later asked, well, what do you think the First Amendment meant? You know what his response was? These were his words, quote, Congress should not establish a religion and enforce the legal observation of it by law, period. That's all it meant. I mean, how difficult is this, folks? Congress can't establish a national religion. That's what it means. There is no pretext here to suggest that the intent of the First Amendment was to isolate government from religious principle. Nothing there at all to even begin to suggest that. It is a very narrow reading of that First Amendment. Now, uh, when Madison made this proposal, the House Select Committee responded, and they said, Madison, you're talking like a lawyer again. Way too much stuff there. We don't need all of those words. Let's simplify it and say this. No religion shall be established by law, nor shall the equal rights of conscience be infringed. That's what it should say. Now, you want to know what one of the guys there said? New York Representative Peter Sylvester objected it objected to that because he thought people might misunderstand what we're saying. You know what Sylvester was afraid of? This is what he said. It might be thought to have a tendency to abolish religion altogether. People might, years down the road, read this, no religion shall be established by law, nor shall the equal rights of conscience be infringed. And they might get the weird idea that we were trying to you know, push religion out of the public square. And that's certainly not what we're trying to do. Is Peter Sylvester a prophet or what? We didn't go with those words, and yet that's exactly what's happening. The very fears of the Founding Fathers, right there as they're writing the First Amendment, are now coming true. An even more profound example of this, Massachusetts Representative Elbridge Jerry suggested this is what it should say. No religious doctrine shall be established by law, and then leave it like that. That's what it should say. Benjamin Huntington of Connecticut objected, and this is what he said, and tell me this guy isn't a prophet. The words might be taken in such latitude as to be extremely hurtful to the cause of religion. The amendment should be made in such a way as to secure the rights of religion, 
Look at this. But not to patronize those who profess no religion at all. The purpose of this amendment isn't to suggest that atheism is somehow on the same plane as those of us with belief. That's not at all what the purpose of the amendment is. We're not trying to patronize those that have no belief. We're simply wanting to prevent one religious denomination being established over the other. Huntington's word, folk, words, folks, if you stop and look at it, it is strangely prophetic because what, is, what are our courts doing today? A recent court decision just came out of California. Don't know if you've been paying any attention, but the words under God and the Pledge of Allegiance unconstitutional. Why? The court declared that it was unconstitutional because if an atheist student was in the classroom and they heard the word God, that might make them feel like an outsider. And we can't make people feel like an outsider. Is that not exactly what we're doing? Patronizing those with no belief at all. And we're using the First Amendment as the basis for it, the very thing that the Founding Fathers themselves said, that is not the purpose of the First Amendment. I really wish they'd have gone with this guy, the father of the Bill of Rights, George Mason. This was his intention, uh, this, or this was his proposal. It makes the intent of the First Amendment crystal clear. And uh, when I see the Founding Fathers one day, we're going to have serious talk about this because this would have been so much better if they'd have just gone with this. All men have an equal, natural, and unalienable right to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience, and no particular sect or society of Christians ought to be favored or established by law in preference to others. Do you know how much better it would have been to make this argument if they would have just gone with Actually, I don't know that it would even matter. To tell you the truth, with some of the ludicrous rulings and decisions that are being made, I don't know even if it spelled it out in plain English, which it already does, if it would really ultimately matter. You see, one of the things that I think we forget about, Mason's words kind of illustrate this to us. They pinpoint something, and that is, when he starts talking about the Christian denomination, we ignore the reality of what ancient or ancient old America really was early America really was the predominant religion practiced in the early states was without question Christianity in 1776 98% of the American public professed to be Protestant Christians 1.8% professed to be Roman Catholic that leaves 0.2% for everything else now you tell me did the founding fathers craft the first amendment so that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Jews and Zoroastrians and atheists and, and secular humanists and um, uh, Taoists and pencil worshipers and I mean we could keep going did they write that first amendment so all of them would be put on the same plane it's absurd to make that argument when you realize what the population breakdown of the United States really was at the time of the writing of these documents 99.8% of the people were Christian why in the world would they write a document that wasn't referring to Christian denominations it doesn't make any sense whatsoever and this was precisely the reason that the founding fathers saw it necessary because there were so many Christian denominations they saw it imperative that that they make sure Congress did not have the power uh, to trample religious rights. There were a lot of denominations and the founding fathers were afraid that one of them might grow to be so powerful or even worse, two of them might team up and take over the national government and have enough people that they would force everyone into worshiping them. And by the way, I know, don't trust me. Don't take my word for it. Look at the words of the founding fathers themselves. James Madison acknowledged this. He responded to the congressional delegates that he, quote, believes that the people feared one sect might obtain a preeminence or two, Anglican and Congregational, because those were two very big denominations at the time, combine and establish a religion to which they would compel others to conform. Don't take my word for it. It's exactly what they're saying. The purpose of the First Amendment was to prevent the rivalry among the various Christian sects. In no way, shape, or form was it to patronize those with no belief at all. And yet, regardless of this, we still have 
all of this conversation. We still have all of this debate and all of this discussion as to whether or not the founding fathers were Christians and what they really intended for the foundation of American government and they clearly didn't want Christian principle to be involved. The only way you come to that conclusion is if you are unwilling to look at the words of the founders themselves. And yet that's exactly what's going on. I had an on-air debate with the president of American Atheist. Her name was Ellen Johnson. Uh, And Ellen and I's conversation lasted for about 25 minutes. And when it ended, it ended for this very reason. Because if there's one thing that the humanist left will not do, if there's one thing that's going to turn them away from any discussion that you're having about what the founding fathers intended for this country, you want to end the conversation, simply start quoting the founding fathers. And they are out of there quicker than you can say snot. Take a look at this clip. The Founding Fathers believe the only way a free society is going to work is if people were taught religious principle. And I can give no, you they George didn't, Washington. They didn't at all. I have my master's thesis on the religious philosophy of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, I, I have I have a master's thesis. I have a master's thesis myself. Explain to me. They said reason. Yes. Reason. Yes, I'm glad you said that. Reason Reason and experience both forbid us to believe that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. George Washington, our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Adams, we could keep going. Thank you, Peter. You're going to make this up and you're going to be a Christian revisionist. No, this is what they said, ma'am. I mean, you can look this up. This is history. Peter, if you have your master's Peter, in have this, a nice day. Uh, you're Take hanging care. up on me. Bye-bye. You're hanging up on me. You know, we argued about religious philosophy for 25 minutes, and she didn't hang up on me. But the one thing that would cause that is quoting the founding fathers themselves. Folks, that should reveal a whole lot to us. What did the First Amendment do and what did it not do? Let's close this way. The First Amendment did two things. It limited the power and the scope of the national government's authority to influence religious doctrine and religious practice. Why? Because it's not the government's purview. It's not the government's responsibility. It's yours. You're the ones that are to be in charge of religion. And the government should stay out of your way. And the First Amendment did serve as a major check on the power of individuals who might try to use the power of government to force their religious denominational practice uh, on less, less popular denominations. That's what the First Amendment did. It protected denominations that were tiny at the time, like the Baptists. It protected them from the power of a Congregationalist president. That was the purpose of the First Amendment. But the First Amendment did not do a couple things also. The First Amendment did not make the government a completely secular object, isolated and removed from all things religious. Just look at the founding constitutions and you'll see that reality. No one came to me today, by the way, with the document that said separation of church and state. I just want you to know that. I didn't skip out on eating it. And the First Amendment did not suggest that these two realms of government and religion were never to, to, uh, to interact were never to cooperate, that they had to be foreign from one another. It never did that, never said that. Well, how did that change? Because look at where we are today. I don't have to convince you where we are today. You see it. Some of the most ludicrous decisions that are made that you could ever imagine being made. How did we get to this point? We know what our foundation was, and we know the people that laid the foundation. How do we get to the point that that society, that culture, that it was an outright blasphemy, it was outright illegal in the state of New Hampshire to say you didn't believe in God? How do we get from that point to where we are today, where in Texas we're going to jail kids, jail them 
from mentioning Jesus at graduation. I'm going to show you uh, some actual court cases that have been decided next week. Um, and that's why I'm not wearing a tie. I would highly advise you don't wear a tie either uh, because your heads will explode too. But we have to understand where we are if we're going to figure out how we make our way back. And that's what I want to do next week. I appreciate your attention. A lot of history in this last, in this second presentation. I couldn't tell you that this morning because then no one would have come back. But it's essential to establish the foundation of the First Amendment so that next week will make sense. We'll understand how some of these court decisions are so absurd when they start making them. Removing school prayer, removing Bible reading from schools and all of that. That's next week. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you again so much for this evening and I thank you for the people that made it back here tonight. And Lord, again, it is uh, humbling to see where we've come from. We're so thankful that our founding fathers and and those uh, key individuals in early America uh, sought to lay this culture on a path that would lead it towards the center of your will. Lord, forgive us for the times that we've strayed from that, uh, not just in, in, in our national life, but in our individual lives and our life as a church. Lord, forgive us of those times and motivate us. Give us the incentive to find our way back to where you want us to be, the center of your will. Lord, go with us from this place. Watch over us, protect us, and bring us back here safely next week. We pray all this in the name of your Son, our living and conquering Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.